Podcast Series by Radio Canada International. We will fight until the end if Armenia does not make a commitment that they will withdraw from occupied Peace can be achieved through the unilateral actions of Armenia. Конечно, это огромная трагедия. Люди гибнут, большие потери. I'm Levan Sivons, and this is the Nagorno-Karabakh Not podcast where we examine the roots of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, its impact on the Armenian and Azerbaijani societies and the larger region. We'll also be looking at possible ways of resolving this conflict. My guest today is Neil Hauer. He's a Canadian journalist and analyst who's usually based in Tbilisi, Georgia. But today we've reached him in Yerevan, Armenia. Neil Hauer, welcome to Radio Canada International. Thanks for having me, Levon. Neil, uh... Tell me first, what brought you to Armenia and w- when did you get there? I arrived in Armenia this time on October 1st, uh, essentially the fourth day of the conflict. And so, you know, I've been based in the Caucasus for the last three and a half years, um, two years in Tbilisi and then one year in, Jord- in Yerevan from last July until this March. And then... Moving back to Georgia, COVID happened. Long story short, I was in Istanbul when the the war broke out here. The little village of Talish is now a trophy for Azerbaijan's army. Until yesterday, I waited a day or two to see how intense it was was going to be this time. It was going to be more limited, like the July clashes. And once it became clear it was, I came here and I arrived here on day four of the war, on October 1st, and I've been here ever since. What was the first thing that you noticed when, when, w- once you got um, to Armenia uh, this time around? What was different? Um, I mean, it was sort of, it was hard to say. It was very surreal. I mean, there, everyone was leaving or everyone was preparing to possibly get called up into the army. Um, the first day that I was here was the day that the, the S-300 system shot down some drones north of Yerevan. And so, yeah, things were escalating at a very fast pace then and I think it was sort of surreal for everyone myself included that you know this is actually the second Karabakh war the one that everyone had been waiting for for 26 years now at this point and that, that it was actually happening now were you surprised that the war started I wasn't entirely um, I remember saying to some friends just the day before that you know, it looks like the the way that things are heading, that there's going to be something that happens in between Armenia and Azerbaijan sometime soon. But I didn't think it would be the next day, and then I didn't think it would be, you know, completely all out like this either. Why is that? I guess I just thought that, you know, there would be some sort of restraining force, or um, it would go like at the four-day war in April 2016, or maybe like the July clashes here, and 
you know, Azerbaijan would make some sort of limited, uh, limited offensive, limited uh, attack, and try and take some, some a few positions and try to change the dynamics of the conflict or the dynamics of the negotiation status. But you know, to actually witness this full-scale assault aimed at just militarily reconquering the entire region was something that I thought wouldn't happen due to international pressure or uh, Russia's role or, you know, just uh, the, the ability of the, the Armenian army to, to halt that just for so many reasons. And, uh, it, and just, you know, it being the 21st century that that seem that that seemingly is something that doesn't happen anymore. State on state wars like that, and so for a lot of reasons, it was very surreal. You also traveled to Nagorno-Karabakh at some point pretty early in the war. Yeah, I went there. I, the first time I tried to get there was uh, near the end of the first week, and so on about uh, the, the the first and the second of I think it was the second of October that, or that I tried to get in there the first time, and we spent two days in Goris on the Armenian side of the border uh, trying to, to get in, but the, the foreign ministry wouldn't allow us because the shelling was super heavy on Stepanakert at that point. And then the next week, we did end up making it in, and so I was there from October 11th to October 14th, and in that time, visited did a lot of places in Stepanakert, and then also Shushi and uh, Martuni on the front. And so, what did you see? Uh, what was the mood like? Uh, was there any indication at that point that things were going really badly for Armenia? Yeah, I remember that it, you know, it certainly didn't seem to be that dire at that point uh, because we had the, the press center in Stepanakert was organizing tours in three different frontline directions: uh, one to the northeast to Martikert, one to the east to Martuni, and one to the southeast to Hadbrut. And at that point in time, Hadrut was the, the scene of heavy fighting. Um, so we still had hopes we, that we'd be able to go there at some point, and that didn't happen. And But there was sort of like this, Stepanakert at that point was quiet too. There weren't there was very little uh, shelling anywhere near it at the, the days that I was there. And it was sort of like this eerie calm behind the lines. And this is at the point where the Azerbaijanis were pushing westwards, you know, along the border with Iran, and when they were starting to really circle around the frontline positions, but there was, you know, there was definitely no sense that uh, things were going to really fall out of hand. I mean, they hadn't, the Azeris had taken some positions at that point, but not much. Um, they ended up taking Hadrut basically in the time that we were there, but you know, that's far in the southeast of the front, and it's one town. And uh, yeah, it definitely didn't. It seemed like, you know, we we knew that the the Armenians had lost a lot of uh, equipment from the videos, of the, just from the videos of Azerbaijani drone strikes, but that there wasn't a sign that things were going that badly at that point. Hmm. When did you start realizing that things are not going well for the Armenian side? I think it was really, you know, that week of around, like, from the 18th to 24th of October, which I guess would be, what, the fourth week of the war. And that's the week where, you know, it, it basically the Armenians had held on decently well, especially the first two weeks. And then the third week, you know, there was progress by the Azerbaijanis. But then that fourth week is when, you know, basically there was a culmination. They, they really broke through and there was this culmination of uh, essentially partly uh, retreat and partly disorganized route from the Armenian forces on the southern front. 
and you know the Azerbaijanis broke through the, they they captured the entirety of the the border with Iran and then pushed up and took and they captured four different provincial centers um, of the the occupied regions surrounding Karabakh proper in the south so they at that point they had taken Jibrail, Fizuli, Zangilan, and then Kubabli, which is uh, Kubabli, which is in the, the southwest, and put them in a position to start pushing up to the the latching corridor itself, and the, which is the main lifeline into Karabakh. And so at that point, things started looking pretty dire, I think. And so once once you get back to uh, Yerevan, did you get a feel that uh, people there have? Um, an inkling or, or what's ha- uh, what's really happening on the front lines? Um, not particularly, really. I, I mean, it, it even to the degree that people knew that they had lost people, people knew that they had lost some land and that they had you know lost tanks and stuff. But a, they didn't know the scale of the losses, or they refused to accept them. And, and they said things like, "Oh, even my my educated friends who are very skeptical, of the government usually had, had said that." Oh, you you don't know like Russia's sending us so much extra equipment. Russia's helping us a lot. They're 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 sending stuff to us. And then, B, I mean, the constant refrain here, basically up until the end, up until the ceasefire was signed, was, uh, yeah, but in the 90s, you know, in the 90s we were lo- losing the war too. In the 90s things were really bad for a while, and then we turned it around and won. You know, the Azerbaijanis pushed in, but it'll, it'll be just like the 90s. We'll turn it around and we'll we'll beat them back. And I mean, this, yeah, this persisted right up to the very end, basically. And I, I think that's an extra reason why people were so sh- stunned, really, and shocked when the the ceasefire deal was announced uh, at 2 a.m. local time uh, Tuesday morning. How do you explain this? Um, you know, is it is it collective denial? What, what was behind this? You know, I mean, the signs were there. If you were looking at what was happening on the front lines, the Azeris kept the divan- advancing, and yet there was this uh, belief that um, things will turn around. How do you explain that? I mean, I really think it is sort of down to this belief that you know the that Ar- Armenia just couldn't lose these lands, or that you know that the Azerbaijanis were not effective fighters, or that. Uh, yeah, that they, they would turn it around and then just, you know, a, a willing uh, an unwillingness to come to grips with the reality of the situation or just to view it through very particular lenses, too. And, I mean, I there's so so many people bought the government. I, I would say almost all of them, if not unanimous, bought the, the government messaging here. Greetings, dear compatriots. Uh, Armenian Unified Info Center continues to work from Yerevan. First, the situation on the front line. You know, we, ca- we, we destroyed all these Azerbaijani tanks. We surrounded a group of Azerbaijani infiltrators and eliminated them. And the Azerbaijanis, the, their attacks are being thrown back on all fronts. And we've destroyed, and especially, I've, uh, you heard versions of, oh, the Azerbaijanis are out of tanks. We've destroyed all their tanks, you know. And they're, they're, it's just like the remnants of their army that are cut, that are in the south now that we're going to mop up. And I mean, the, a lot of it was here was the was frankly the propaganda on the Armenian side, and people really ate it up. And even to the degree that some of them were skeptical, um, I think people really did believe that you know the Azerbaijani losses were just massive and unsustainable, and that you know, that, that they were basically the Armenians had ground them down to nothing and were going to throw them all back, you know, in some upcoming offensive, which clearly was a pretty divorced picture from reality. On, was it November the, starting from November November 5th, 6th, and especially on the 7th, 
uh, we started getting reports that the Azerbaijanis were in Shushi, or uh, there was fighting around Shushi. Has been able to approach, and the battles continue day or night. And yeah. I, I remember uh, following the reports, and especially on social media, there was a lot of pushback against uh, one of uh, one of the reporters who I know personally, who actually said that you know we, uh, the government reporting on um, Shushi isn't really accurate. Uh, what do you think was happening there? Um, I mean, it's it, it's hard to say. I, I mean, just, just the fact that, you know, that last week, uh, basically from about, you know, November 2nd, when the Azerbaijanis launched their big push through to like, yeah, the Saturday there, when it seems like it was basically over, who knows what, what really happened. But at any rate, you know, the defenses were obviously so degraded that they basically just collapsed because the Azerbaijanis pushed through about 30 kilometers worth of territory and then just straight up into Shushi and just stormed it and took it. And I mean, Shushi is, it's six, it sits about half a kilometer above all the surrounding territory and, you know, three sides are sheer cliffs. And to just be, to be able to just lose a position like that, that everyone knows is the, the key to the whole war. And if you lose that, you're done. Uh, just people lose that like that indicates to me that, you know, I, they, they must have been either there was some extreme incompetence going on or prob probably some mix of the two or they were just uh, completely exhausted the militarily they were they were done and and so i think it, it, people once they started getting towards shushi too it was oh now they're going up into the mountains they're going to have it's going to be so hard for them to advance in but i i think at that point basically the damage had been done you know the there have been so like the azerbaijanis had spent their week previous to that uh, sort of consolidating and just hitting, using their drones to hit. I mean, all the drone strikes from the week before that, all the videos were of drone strikes on howitzers, like artillery emplacements, and then entrenched groups of infantry. And I think they just basically cleared out all the, the defensive preparations there that existed. And then also, I mean, there, there was no really defensive line behind what existed in, in, uh, on the first line in the south. I mean, I think it was just sort of sort of that, you know, like a, a real lack of any defensive preparations behind the, the first line. Hmm. You were in Yerevan at night uh, when the deal was um, announced, uh, This uh, the uh, declaration on, on ceasefire. Can you describe what was it like? What happened on the streets? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was very surreal because the the post. I, I looked it up the other day to, to confirm, and it was it, 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 the news broke on Nikola Shinyan's Facebook. He posted about it at 1:48 a.m. local time, and so you know it was in the middle of the night, basically. And it was absolutely shocking to people. I mean, I myself was surprised that it was over just that quickly, because I sort of had this image that you know there have been fewer videos of drone strikes the previous days, and like the weather was bad, so. And the, there was, the Armenians were bringing up more armor, so I thought that they were going to consolidate and, you know, sort of hold back for a while, uh, at least another week or two. But then that broke suddenly. And, I mean, it just, chaos erupted almost instantly. Like, within 10, 15 minutes, I was hearing cars driving past my apartment, honking. And then I said, okay, let's go down to Republic Square. And I went down there, and as I'm walking down there, you know, there's just... All sorts of people going there, honking, yelling. Uh, there, uh, 
as I was on the way there, there was a burst of gunfire into the air. Um, and then, yeah, basically a riot unfolded on Republic Square. And they broke into the Prime Minister's residence and then, you know, went elsewhere, went up to the Parliament, broke into there, and the big brawls going on just between people inside there. And, yeah, it was essentially just a, a riot on Monday night there. I mean, it's been really polarized here. You know, there's plenty of people who say, you know, Nichols a traitor for handing over these lands. And then there's plenty of other people who say, you know, there's absolutely nothing you could have done. And uh, we don't, and the people leading the protests are the old regime. And it's just them trying to exploit the situation, come back to power. Uh, which, frankly, there's a good amount of truth in that. And then, you know, there's lots of stories, too, about how, yeah, about army units being held back. And, and especially, you know, that the, the generals in Shushi were loyal to Robert Kacharyan, the former prime minister, the former president. And so that they intentionally sabotaged it. So there it. And so there is sort of like this stab in the back myth that's developed, um, pointing fingers at various directions. I mean, it's yeah. There's no one has really settled on what they. They're, they're, the society is really not settled on, you know, what uh, they think was the most likely course of events here. So there's just been a lot of, you know, infighting. Um, people try and come to grips with what happened and, and try and pin it on how much of it is Nicole's fault or um, what could have Nicole have done differently or uh, um, what's it mostly the fault of the, the previous governments which is a line that i lean towards but yeah it's a it's very um it's very emotional very confused time for people here. how likely do you think that nicole pashinyan and his government will survive this i think they're going to i mean i really think that you know there's just no alternative that people that that many people will accept because it's basically the opposition parties are um associated with the old regime and that I mean that that is the majority of the, the the larger opposition parties, and everyone, or at least the vast majority of people, seem to realize that you know whatever is wrong with Nicole, like maybe he should go eventually. But if he just goes and is replaced with the old regime, then that's just a step back for everyone. And so I think that you know in the near term at least he's going to survive. And so in your uh, from assessment from the ground there, what you see is that this deal will hold for now. I think so, yeah. I, I definitely think so. Uh, it, number one, just because the, the Russians are already there. You know, the, within hours of it being announced, the Russians were already um, pouring men and vehicles in, in through Lachin and into Karabakh and setting up positions. And so that the... I think it will definitely provide, uh, it'll definitely be a durable end to the fighting because of that. Sure, there'll be some ceasefire violations, but by and large, this, this, this will hold. And the more confusing thing now is just sort of how this deal will be implemented uh, because there's so many parts of it that are unclear. I mean, this is basically a draft document and it doesn't it specify too many, it doesn't specify much of what's going to happen or where the exact lines of control are going to be. Um, so this, and so parts of it are taking place are going to affect really quickly, like the the, the handover of Kelbajar in uh, the northwest is. What, I mean, this deal came out essentially early on November 10th, and then on November 15th already, five days later, Kelbajar is supposed to be handed over. You were at uh, you said Dadivank, which is uh, a medieval monastery. Armenian monastery uh, that was uh, repaired and rebuilt and uh, was one of the more popular tourist attractions in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh over the last few years. Uh, 
what what was the the mood there like? I mean, it was very heavy, very sad. Uh, people, it was essentially, you know, there was quite a few people there, probably about a hundred or so when we got there. And they, they, I mean, the mood was essentially saying goodbye to Tadavank. You know, people coming there for what, what they expected would be the last time ever, because that is most likely in the region that is going to be given back to Azerbaijan. Although, you know, there's there's some maps going around showing that this actually might be within the zone um, that Russian peacekeepers are going to be guarding, uh, but and and thus remaining within Armenian control. But, I mean, it is also part of Kelbajar region, so most likely I think it's going to be handed over to the Azerbaijanis. And so it was a very heavy mood there. I mean, you know, the, the people coming and saying their last goodbyes and then uh, get, coming to grips with this. What's your personal, uh, I mean, the most significant or the most memorable thing from uh, over this last 40, 45 days? This last week here has been the, the longest one since the first one. Um, I guess in terms of uh, just the the start and the finish of it were the most surreal, I think. Uh, the, the start that this was actually happening and on this scale, and then the end, you know, that basically, yeah, it happened, and now the borders of, uh, of Artsakh, of Karabakh, are changed forever. And the, the fact that now that, yeah, this, this has actually just happened, and it's set in stone, at least for the next five years here, and I mean, that I think is the, yeah, the, the fact that, you know, this full scale war happened and just went on for 45 days at full, or 44 days at full intensity. And yeah, it resulted in, you know, the, this massive change of the ground. What do you think is the lesson from this, uh, I guess, for Armenia, but also for the international community? I mean, for Armenia, I really think it's um, be smart, be more prepared, and be smart with your military purchases. Uh, and especially, I mean, there was so much money that was siphoned off over the, the past two decades by uh, the Kacharyan and then Sar the Sargsyan uh, governments uh, through just through corruption and money that, was, that should have gone to the military that, that never made it there, that was put into people's pockets instead. And then, you know, the, even the, some of the purchases they did make were really, you know, not suited for the needs that they had. Uh, and ba yeah, basically they, they needed to keep up. They, they tried to fight the uh, 1990s war in a, 21st in a 2020, 21st century environment. And then I think for the international community, you know, is that especially without the, U with the US being largely absent. I mean, the, the timing of this war was no accident that it happened before US elections with the US in the middle of coronavirus, uh, with the world in the middle of coronavirus. And um, then especially, I mean, the, the real the, one of the main reasons that this happened at this intensity now is because uh, you had this, 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 this existing balance of power where, you know, Azerbaijan was stronger, but they, they never felt like politically or militarily that they could have gone all in and done this. And Russia was there sort of mediating between the two sides. And, but then Turkey came in. Turkey came in with full diplomatic and um, military, like command and control backing and operating these Bayraktar drones for Azerbaijan, and that completely changed the equation, you know? So I guess the lesson of the international community is that this is, you know, without without the U.S. there, it's basically, this. if the U.S. is not going to be present, which maybe will change again under Biden administration, but if the U.S. is not going to get involved in immediately to halt things like these, then 
you know, then regional powers can just go in and try and throw their weight around and try and turn these different conflicts in the way that they see fit and try and change the balance of power on the ground, which is what happened here. Neil, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time and um, good luck with your reporting and with your work in this uh, very interesting region. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to episode two of the Nagorno-Karabakh Knot, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. Check out our other podcasts on rcinet.ca. You can also download them on your favorite podcast platform.